This is Unheard Cuts on Being. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Diane Winston. She holds the night chair in media and religion at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism that's at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. I spoke with her on November 2nd, 2011, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of NPR West in Culver City, California. This interview is included in our show, Monsters We Love, TV's pop culture theodicy. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. You're sounding good, right? So far, so good. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hand you off to Minnesota, okay? Okay. Hi, Diane. Minnesota, she's you... all yours. Okay. Diane, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. You sound really good. Oh, really? I'm trying to be very strong and definitive. Okay, look. Yeah? I'm on the radio every week, and if I happen to turn the radio on when my show is on, I just want to die, okay? It's it's not really? you. It's the problem of hearing your own self-talk that is just horrifying. It's a natural really? human reaction. It's the human condition. You're okay. Oh, Krista, that makes me feel bad. When you look in the mirror, do you see wrinkles and cellulite, too? Yes, of course I do. It's the same thing. You just focus in on whatever it is that you hate, and that's not what anybody else looks at. Okay? <laughs> How you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah? We should talk sometime. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's know, I'm, talk. I'm busy writing this book, and so I'm sort of all by myself all the time. It's, is uh, it in the dark, deep, dark pit of writing a book? Place? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, let's talk. Call me for just to, you know, for human companionship. I'm happy to Good. be there for you. Good. Are you Are you teaching again? I'm going to teach in January, but not now. Mm-hmm. You've and, had a nice and, long break, haven't you, from teaching? From. Yeah, well, I taught... Yeah, I've been off since May, so you'd think I could have written three books by now, right? No, no, And I talked to Kate last week who said that um, you're going to go to Turkey instead of India, which I don't blame you. Yeah, well, I'm going to—and also the time is better because it's in June. I mean, I'm going to go anyway is the thing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to this event, and uh, it just seems crazy if I'm going to go that we don't— Try to we. I mean, we still have to figure that out, but that we don't try to do something around it. And June is a much better time of the year for us to attempt something like that. Yeah, I've always wanted to go to India, though. Have you been before? I haven't been, and if it works out, and if I can get more money, maybe we can go again next year, yeah. and maybe that would work. Yeah. So. Yeah, I've always. I mean, I know I'll get there someday. I just, just hasn't happened yet. So, Chris, are we? Can we go? Okay. Yes. Um, yes. Yes, I see them. Is that better? Okay. Um, so, Diane, so what I was thinking we might do, we, we can, of course, this can, this can go wherever it goes, but I, I thought maybe we would start with um, the kind of looking backwards stuff, a little, you know, a little bit about Mad Men, which we didn't talk about before, because I think it hadn't been invented yet. 
um, mm-hmm. and you know the Pan Am and the kind of what what is this thing, <clears throat> and then get into the the very big post-apocalyptic you know zombies, falling skies, all that stuff. Um, okay, um, one of the things that I've really been thinking a lot about lately, which if we can work in, it would be good. Uh-huh. Um, we have those monsters that are the zombies and the werewolves and the vampires. Yeah. But but we also have the monsters like Dexter. Yeah, yeah. And no, yeah. Good. And that's where I want to go, from, too. Okay. From there. Okay. I just, actually, what I'm saying is I, I don't want to start with zombies and monsters, because I think if we do, we'll never get away. Let's try to get Mad Men in first, because then I agree. Then there are all these different themes that are kind of related to that. Um, right. And on the other side of it, have you... Were you thinking that we could talk about Enlightened? Because that's really yes. interesting also. Yes, okay. I did. I did. So I thought, yeah, I thought we would um, go through exactly what you said, kind of get into the monsters and then like the the morality that's out there in general and then talk about religion. I mean, I think that'll come up, but maybe, um, you know, look, think of, uh, I don't want to, I don't give too much of a way, but I, I think we're thinking along the same. I was kind of thinking that we'd get to Enlightened kind of at the end, near the end. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, we have some clips, and we may play with, we may experiment with playing something for you and I to talk about. Obviously, we can throw these things in later, um, mm-hmm. and it may be it may be it may be helpful. It may be awkward, so we'll just see how it goes. Okay, so, and I brought my Bible with me. You brought your Bible with you. <laughs> wow, I'm so glad. Okay, <laughs> you feel free to open it up anytime. <laughs> Um, should we go? Okay. So, you know, where I usually start all my interviews, I, I, I don't want to start this time about, you know, last time you and I talked about our growing up and TV watching habits. But I thought maybe let's just start by you saying a little bit about, um, I mean, I want to, I want to actually revisit here in a new era of television. I think the Renaissance continues apace that you and I discussed last time. Um, that this that television increasingly as a place and a sophisticated place where we where we're telling the story of our time, and why don't you just say a little bit as we start about um, you know the perch from which you are watching all this, um, you know how you came to be interested in it, how you follow it as a person, as a consumer of entertainment, as a mother, as a journalist, as a teacher. Just a little bit about your vantage point. And Christy, you can like cut out anything oh, yeah. you want. So yeah. okay, yeah, I'll make you sound brilliant, <laughs> <laughs> which of course I, isn't very hard at all. <laughs> I must begin with a confession, which is that when you asked me last time what I watched as a kid, and I said the Mickey Mouse show, I was trying to clean my image up. The truth of the matter is, <laughs> as a child, I love Star Trek. And I remember the very first episode of Star Trek. I remember where I was. I remember what I was doing. I can still conjure up seeing those characters on the screen and the excitement I felt about this kind of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to how television reflects the era and the concerns of the times we live in. Because even though I was just a little, I was a younger person in the mid or late 60s when that came out, the questions of what are the, what is the final frontier, what's this all about, who can we trust, were roiling my world just as they were projected up on Star Trek. Yeah. And 
to me, the great thing about television is this is the um, canvas for our cultural concerns. Culture, art is always a place where people go to work out their spiritual issues. We have religion and religious institutions and organized religion, but that's about structure and community. It's about places to do rituals that remind us where we are in our lives. It's, it's orderly and contained. Uh-huh. It's about society. Art and culture and religion is about ecstasy and disruption and the big questions and the awfulness. And that's what we see on television. We see uh-huh. dramas that are asking us to step outside our normal, structured lives and contemplate meaning. Hmm. Well, that's a great place to start. And, you know, Diane, I also loved Star Trek and continued (laughs) actually even more to love the Star Trek Next Generation and Voyager. And I even loved Captain Janeway, who nobody remembers. But um, Oh, Kristen, did you see her on Warehouse 13? I, 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 no, I didn't. I saw an ad for it. I got I got all excited just about glimpsing her face, though. But, you know, actually, I was going to tell you, when when we put this show on the air, when you and I talked about TV a few years ago, people wrote in complaining that we, hadn't just, we had not talked about Star Trek. So I'm actually, for that reason, also really glad you started <laughs> there. Um, and, I mean, maybe, you know, let's just, for a minute, stay in... So that, that that was when did Star Trek start? Do you know? Was it the sixties? It feels like the sixties, but it was, it was probably the seventies or no, no. The first, the very first Star Trek was in the mid to late sixties. It was okay. So, um, so you know, and this is as good a place to start as any. There's something really interesting going on right now, where we from the two thousand tens look back at the 60s um, with a much more jaded eye, (laughs) you know, than we had then. I mean, even Star Trek, uh, if you think about it now, was so hopeful and, you know, idealistic in a a lovely way about how humanity would work out all its problems. Right. As I look back at that Star Trek, um, there was a real lack of irony. And when I yeah. watch it now, it's almost embarrassing. Yeah. But that's what defined the 50s and the early parts of the 60s. And even though Star Trek was a little later, I still think it reflected that perspective. Mm-hmm. And at the time, we really wanted to know what our role was in the universe and how we could help other people and how we lived out this manifest destiny and there was nothing ironic about it no and we had a very optimistic vision of that right I mean, the, the prime directive is, right that we right. would that it was do no harm in the cosmic way right but of course we would do good that mm-hmm. was always captain kirk's assumption that we could interfere with everything mm-hmm. god it shows really about colonialism isn't it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and and so you know and when i was so i think when you and I spoke before, you know, Mad Men hadn't happened, which is, which is, which is a big cultural phenomenon. And uh, I think something you wrote about about Mad Men in the Washington Post, you, know, you talked about how um, how in that period of time there was this there was this order about things. I mean, one of the things that that television show now is 
is demonstrating is the simmering despair and looming chaos that was beneath that surface of order, right? Mm-hmm. But but that was the story um, we told ourselves, and you know that that is that story also that echoes in in Star Trek um, in an interesting way. Right, it's a story that has heroes and that has villains and that has good guys and bad guys and everything is very straightforward mm-hmm. and that's why it's so attractive and at a point now where we're so deep in the postmodern you know relativistic um, worldview the idea of that simplicity is very appealing now to its credit Mad Men doesn't make it look as if there were no costs involved no I mean Don Draper is a real suffering soul in his own way yeah and women in that show um really get the short end but it seems like um almost a pre-edenic time if that makes sense you um wrote that matt he does he say weiner or weiner <clears throat> i don't know yeah matt, I mean, matt weiner matt weiner um has said that one of the things that's central to him about the kind of way all those characters are waking up to their lives in the world is that is this realization that suddenly even the smallest acts had consequences. I thought that was so interesting that he said that. Right. Do you think it's interesting because people weren't aware of that then or because he can dramatize it? I think it's interesting because, you know, I really love that show and that's not a way I'd thought about what's happening there. Just that, mm-hmm. I think, was it made me it made me look at it again. I mean, I feel like watching Mad Men as somebody who grew up, for me the a really iconic moment in uh in Mad Men. Uh, that 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 feels like a lot of it kind of therapeutic in the sense of revisiting <laughs> revisiting reality and your childhood and then starting to tell the deeper truth about it um, was this moment where Betty, you know, Don's now ex-wife, um, uh, you know, looks around. They've got the house. They have the suburban house, and it has all the right numbers of bedrooms and all the new gadgets in the kitchen and they have the two kids and it's the right neighborhood right and he has the job and he's on his way up and she's beautiful and and she says uh you know i think they're coming out of a fight but she says something you know how could i not be happy when i have all of this and i feel like that refrain was there you know in my childhood and 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 it was it was it was again it was something we said because in the fact that, that, in fact, people were still unhappy <laughs> and there was still kind of disarray beneath that polished surface um, didn't, or, you know, almost didn't make sense. Right, because we looked at the surface of things and thought if the surface was okay, everything else would be fine too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which probably, you know, says something about the historical moment. It was a post-war era. People were glad to have jobs, to be home with their families. Mm-hmm. Um, there was um, a sense, I think, from the top down that America was entering this really privileged time where we were going to be the superpower of the world. So what could be bad? Yeah. But it doesn't work like that, does it? Yeah. I'm yeah. wondering what you think about... Um, 
Peggy, that's the name of Don's assistant, right? Mm-hmm. Peggy, who's almost the only, <clears throat> well, she comes closest to being a liberated woman. She's a working woman. Right. So did Peggy give birth to those girls on Pan Am, to those women on Pan Am? Yeah. <laughs> they seem her, her spiritual um, sisters. They do. I mean, the thing about Pan Am is, <laughs> and I mean, in a way, I feel like Pan Am is like this reminder. It's not, there's not so much complexity and irony to what's going on, or it's more, it's all out on the surface, maybe is a better way to say it. Like, you remember which is kind of shocking how those jobs, those stewardess jobs, were so empowering, right? Mm-hmm. And at the very same time that they were all about, you know, women being objectified, women being sex objects. And those two things are they're, they're both very powerful experiences in this just constant tension. Right. That I was prepared to hate that show. Yeah. And I was surprised how much I enjoyed it because especially the characters are fleshed out yeah. and they're sort of interesting and you can kind of feel their proto-feminist longings. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you're right. On the one hand, they're totally being objectified and they know it and they res- some of them fight against it. But on the other hand, they're finally in a place where they can do something with their lives. They're free. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, I was thinking about this because I have a 12-year-old, and on the one hand, I want her to be proud of her body. On the other hand, I think she has to know how she is objectified by other people's other people looking at her. Mm-hmm. And these women in Pan Am sort of represent that tension. I'm proud of who I am, but... I also have to live in a world where people look at me as a sex object. Well, and uh, those scenes, which I know are true to life, where they get put up on the scale and Mm -hmm. are checked to see if they're wearing their girdles, (laughs) right? And, I mean, it was not done that your hair was out of place. And, I mean, I know that's true. I remember, you know, knowing stewardesses, (laughs) you know, distantly. And and that's – they're not making any of that up. I have to say, my, uh, yeah. my daughter, who's 18 now, is just completely enchanted with their little uh, shoes that they're wearing. That's what she sees. She really loves their shoes. <laughs> I haven't even looked at their shoes. <laughs> I haven't either. And she keeps telling me to look at the shoes, and I always forget. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but you're right. It, shows like Mad Men and Pan Am are fascinating because they're, they're reminders to us of how far we've come. And yet they're um, a perspective on how things don't change so much. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, is sexism any better today? Mm-hmm. That's different, but... Are people less alienated than Don Draper? Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Well, go ahead. And, th- well and, then what's, and then what's so interesting to me is, uh, on the one hand, we have this... And I, I mean, we have to say about about Pan Am and about Mad Men, or if you look at uh, this really great show, The Hour, that was on BBC recently, which is kind of their version of of Mad Men. Oh God! But it's so much. It's great. Okay, it's great. <laughs> it's great. It's great. But here's one thing they all have in common: even when there's a lot of uh, despair and chaos under the surface and turmoil, and it's not all a pretty picture. It's certainly not. It's not. It's it's not a romanticized picture. Um, but it's all very beautiful, right? Airbrushed. 
aesthetically, uh, these are these are lovely things to watch. Um, and the people aesthetically are very appealing. So you have that, and you know you have more of that. I mean, and then we have this other genre that is, you know, maybe even more popular now of the kind of post-apocalyptic uh, humanity. I mean, civilization essentially reversed back to survival. Everything stripped away. Mm-hmm. You know, let me play this clip from um, Falling Skies, which, which premiered a little bit earlier than, uh, uh, well, I guess The Walking Dead was already on. But I, I, and of course Spiel, Spielberg was involved in that. And I just thought, you know, there's a lot of this, uh, this kind of scenario in a lot of shows right now. So, did you watch Falling Skies? Wait, were we supposed to hear something? Did you not hear it? No, oh, I heard nothing. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just tell you about it. It was, okay. it's basically this scene where it's the voices of children, and they're essentially describing how everything, you know, that is kind of basic, like, you know, electricity went away, televisions, <laughs> computers, um, our uh, government, um, moms and dads had to go out to fight, right? Um, it's like unrolling um, both mm-hmm. both the s- structures of civil society and just what has counted as ordinary life. So, yeah. Um, did you ask me a question? Well, I'm just... <laughs> Uh, no, I'm, yeah, no, not really. Just reflect. <laughs> reflect. Okay, okay. Well, Falling Skies, um, which I watched this summer, and The Walking Dead, which I've tuned into a couple of times, both have this central conceit of where is God? And can we still believe in God if the world is like this? Yeah. Um, they kind of take the collapse at many people feel is going on right now to the nth degree. Yeah. So it's it's not just um, we're in a recession, everything has broken down. Yeah. And that makes sense because, as I said earlier, the function of art is to help people work through the central problems of their times. And it's often simpler to do that if you exaggerate and um, if you hmm. do it in broad sketches rather than in teeny tiny ones. Um, So it's plaintive when these characters say, my life has broken down. 
what do I do? Yeah. Or where is God? How can God allow this to happen? Interestingly, people just keep on keeping on. And they try to find meaning in just the act of existence, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, I, I, I was actually pretty amazed. So let's just say the second season premiere of The Walking Dead, which I'm just waking up to, was the highest rated drama telecast in the history of basic cable. And it's really breaking records in the 18 to 49 demographic. Um, on the AMC show page, there's this moment of a kind of, you know, they're telling the story and then they say this, which really is, you know, an expression of what you just said. Instead of the zombies, it is the living who truly become the walking dead. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because in a lot of a lot of shows have monsters who are monsters, mm-hmm. but there are also monsters who are actual human beings in other shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and who's to say whether Dexter or um, Eric in True Blood is more of a monster? Yeah, and Dexter well, and Eric is a thousand-year-old vampire, and right. Dexter is a twenty-first century guy who's watched his mother be killed when he was a child and is a serial killer himself, although he kills bad guys. Right. Right. Um, did you watch the... Uh, I mean, I do want to talk about this, especially because The Walking Dead is so... is really hitting something for people. And I have to say, when we online started telling listeners that we were going to be having this conversation with you and talking about television. And we immediately got all these requests to to make sure we spent a lot of time with The Walking Dead. I mean, and in in this one, I mean, um, you know, echoing what you said, people are really talking about a, it being an example of pop culture theodicy, mm-hmm. um, that it, it's, it's bringing out a deep sense of meaninglessness and divine absence. Right. Right. Um, And the zombies are a perfect representation of that because unlike werewolves or vampires who interact with people, zombies don't do very much. And I mean, they're they're wonderful symbols because you can project so much on them, but they're not great playmates. Yeah. Well, they're just they're they're And well, and part of the theological idea is that they're their bodies detached from souls in a way. It's not just right. that they're detached from life. They're just they're just activated brain stems. <laughs> but then you have Wait, then you are have Are you saying van- are vampires have souls in? Yeah, well I don't know. That's another question we could get into. <laughs> vampires right. have emotional lives. At least the vampires right, which, you and I know from True Blood have emotional right. lives. Which zombies don't. No. Vampires have yes. relationships. Good or right. bad. Um, zombies kind of push the boundaries of what is human because, as you say, they have bodies, but they have no emotions, they have no souls. Yeah. And so what is our, re- what is our response in our, to them and our responsibility for them? Um, it's a harder question. Right. But, yeah. So you think all these people are watching The Walking Dead because they're trying to figure out, you know, how do I 
react to a world where I feel like I'm cut off from everything and I can't find meaning? Well, I'm not sure that I would that I know how to describe why people are watching it. Um, but let's say, for example, when you and I spoke a couple years ago, we talked about Lost, and there's there's a sense in which it's the same kind of um, there, there's a similarity between you know setting this this small group of survivors out on this you know constant adventure where they are confronted with horrors and um, and that have a certain supernatural bent to them um, and they're surviving but but in fact the walking dead is much bleaker than lost right I mean lost had all this pathos and beautiful moments and people finding love and redemption and the walking dead is a is a very dark um, dark view of Life as a kind of, I mean, you know, there's a there's a line I was watching a an episode of this woman who talks about this endless horrific nightmare we live every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is no miraculous or wonder or redemption. Did you see the episode where one of the main characters was talking about we need a miracle, we need a miracle, and what happens is the boy gets shot? Yeah. In fact, I think we have tape of um so so yeah, let's set this up. This was the this was this first second second season for premiere where which so many people watched where they come ac- across a, ch- a Southern Baptist church and uh they walk inside and Rick who's the kind of, you know, closest thing they have to a hero. Um well, first of all, they come inside, and there are about three zombies sitting in pews looking at a huge crucifix, which is kind of interesting. You have no idea if they're thinking or what's going on. But then once No, they... they're saying there's no—they're saying to themselves, why is there a crucifix in a Southern Baptist church, right? <laughs> exactly. I know. <laughs> what that's happened a problem to the production the, design? I know. Well, what happened with the people who— didn't really understand that it shouldn't be a Southern Baptist church. But it's also a bigger <laughs> crucifix than any crucifix I've ever seen anywhere. Um, and But then—so— uh, so they so they have a, their battle with the zombies, and then interestingly, a few of them walk in and say prayers. And here's Rick, and this is the moment before uh, that you're talking. Wait, about. the zombies say the prayers, or the people? No, say no, the, the prayers? people say they get rid of the zombies. <laughs> they have the zombie battle, and then and then a few of them walk in and say prayers that feel like this is the way life used to be. We used to walk into churches and say prayers. Right. But here's here's uh, Rick in the church. I don't know if you're looking at me with what. Sadness, scorn, pity, love, maybe just indifference. I guess you already know I'm not much of a believer. I guess I just chose to put my faith elsewhere family mostly, my friends, my job. The thing is, we, I could use a little something to help keep us going. Some kind of acknowledgement, some Indication I'm doing the right thing. 
You don't know how hard that is to know. Well, maybe you do. Hey, look, I don't need all the answers. Just, just a little nudge, you're fine. Any sign will do. So there's that, um... Wait, Krista, that yeah. is amazing. Like, Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Well, it's sort of like, hey, Geth Gethsemane. I mean, God, yeah. talk to me, right? Yeah. So, you know, you think here's this, like, crazy show on AMC, yeah. but it is that central theological question of where is God in my suffering, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's absolutely explicit out there. And then, of course, he walks out of the church. He says, give me a sign. This is a story we've seen many times, right? And, mm -hmm. and then they, they go out into the woods. He's with his little son and another man, and they see a deer. And it's a beautiful moment of nature. And you think, here's the sign. And then it all goes terribly. A shot rings right. out. Not just the deer dies, but the child is hit as well. Right. Right. Which echoes back, taking my son, you know, whether it's Abraham and uh -huh. Isaac or whether it's God and Jesus. It's take, you want a sign? I'll take your son. Right? Wow. <laughs> um, I, th I don't think it's stretching to really read these deeper um, classic religious tropes onto the current scene because what is culture except making those tropes come alive in each generation? Hmm. Um, you know, people have been asking, where is God for thousands of years? And why wouldn't we be asking the same question? And why wouldn't we want to represent it in our own language rather than in, you know, the King James Version? Hmm. And then there's something going on as well that's related, but not not so directly theological, but about morality, right? And and I, and I, you know, it's like what happens to morality when everything falls apart like this? Um, and you know, you you also have uh, you have you have people at uh, um, why can't Occup at Occupy Wall Street dressing up as corporate zombies? Right? I mean, so there there are people actually who are thinking about ethical things and using the the zombie language. But I think the a deep one on the show, and it's actually in some of these other shows like Falling Skies, and is uh, where do you then find morality? You know, where does morality come from now? And, and something that's difficult or troubling or especially challenging is about zombies is you can show no mercy, right? You can chop their heads off without a minute of remorse. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, and so Colson Whitehead, who's just written this new novel, zombie novel, I thought this was right. interesting. He said, right. and this gets at this too, for <clears throat> me, the terror of the zombie is that at any moment, your friend, your family, your neighbor, your teacher, the guy at the bodega down the street can be revealed as the monster they've always been. So there's also some pretty earthy, dark reflection on humanity that's going on here. Right. Um, that's why zombies who are 
like on The Walking Dead, actually looking like zombies, and zombies who seem to be real people provide an interesting counterpoint. So Breaking Bad, Walter White, yeah. in some ways over the last three years, he's become more of a zombie. He's more and more cut off his human side and his hmm. human interactions, hmm. even as his cancer progresses, to stay alive and get one task done. And as he becomes more of a walking zombie, he's much more comfortable killing people and um, living in an amoral universe. So I have really had trouble getting into that one. I find it really hard to watch. But So would you just give a little capsule of what the, what the, the story there is, the plot, and who he is? Breaking Bad is the story of a high school chemistry teacher who discovers he has terminal cancer and wants to make sure his family is taken care of when he dies. So he starts cooking up meth and selling it, and he takes on one of his former students as his helper. And the show is about his descent into this criminal world of drug dealing and the implications that it has for his relationships and for his soul. And Vince Gilligan, the creator, um, has said that to him, it's important to see that actions have consequences and to look at what happens to a person's soul once they make certain decisions. And so the character does not remain static. The very fact of him getting deeper and deeper into a criminal life changes not only the dynamics of his family, like his wife leaves him, it also changes his whole personality. I mean, he becomes more cut off, more inward and um, more um, amoral, more able to kill, lest he be killed. And it's a hard show to watch because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just uh, haven't been able to stay. I can't sit. I can't watch it. Yeah. I was thinking a lot about that, about the monsters I like watching as opposed to the monsters I don't like watching. Yeah. Um, I love watching True Blood and Vampire Diaries, but... <laughs> I don't like watching Dexter and Breaking Bad as much. Uh-huh. And I it's the more I mean it's easy to see why, right? Because, you know, one is those six, the blood in one is real and in another it's not. Right. Yeah. Right. And the and monsters are sexy in in those shows I like whereas they're you know, off-putting uh-huh. in others. But Breaking Bad is hard to watch. You know, it takes place in Albuquerque and the scenery is dry and the dialogue is sparse and the action is bleak. It is a hard show to watch, but it does have this almost biblical pace to it and the sense that it's dealing straightforwardly in issues of life and death. So so here's something that I wonder about us as viewers. So this is, I mean, this is entertainment. And, you know, I've also had a hard time getting into Dexter, but... Uh, I can see how it's entertaining. I haven't quite gotten there with <laughs> with Breaking Bad. Um, is there something? Is there something? Is there some difficult message about us as a culture or us as watchers that, on some level, we enjoy this? I mean, I don't know if "enjoy" is the right word, but you know what I'm saying. What What does the popularity of these things say about us? I people want to see the basic dramas 
of their lives enacted? And why are passion plays so popular? Why, why, why the crucifix? Right. Um, those central themes um, speak to us in dramatic ways, and so we want to see them again and again. I mean, it's not easy watching the movie The Passion of Christ, which I suppose maybe that's sui generis and we shouldn't put it in there, but it's not easy watching a passion play, mm-hmm. and yet it's instructive and it's meaningful. And, you know, if you are Jewish, it's not easy going into synagogue and hearing the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, and yet you know you're hearing it for a reason or it's telling you something, or mm-hmm. Job for that matter. So mm-hmm. I think it performs a similar function. People have a hard time getting that because television is a consumer commodity. And so there's a level at which this is also entertainment. Yeah. And we don't think of religion and entertainment mixing. The truth is, is that religion and entertainment have always mixed, you know, whether it's with the stained glass windows in European cathedrals or the passion plays put on or um, early movies that depicted um, the life of Christ. Uh, religious people use have used dramatic means to get a message across. Um, but but here's so I'm just still kind of pu- troubling puzzling with this. So so um, there seems to me to be a theme out there right now, certainly in Dexter, which is about um, you know a guy who saw his mother killed and then kills bad guys, but he kills bad guys. I mean, he he's a murderer. There are other things that are a little bit lighter, but this well, you know, Revenge is this new show, um, mm-hmm. which I think is quite good television. You know, actually quite kind of frothy in places, even though it's a serious theme. Um, you know, Breaking Bad. So it's like. It's you know, are we glorifying in some way people who, um, who do terrible things because they have a really good reason? <laughs> you know, I mean, and and it, I mean, does that say like retribution has its place, and is that saying something about where we've gotten to as a culture? But I don't know if I don't think we're glorifying them. I don't think Walter White is glorified. I think he's a broken, pathetic person. And I don't think Dexter is glorified. Um, he's also seen as um, someone who's doing the best to cope with a horrible situation. So I don't, I mean, we're enjoying them um, and they become commodities in a sense, but mm-hmm. then that's what our whole society is based on, so no surprise. Um, right. I, but see, that, there you put your <laughs> finger on it. I mean, I think it is a reflection of something. A ref- well, the but, commodity thing is, I know, it's not. Is it, a, is it an extension of, of how we watch Jack Bauer in 24 torture bad guys? And, you know, somehow it was okay, at least for a little while, because they were really, really bad guys. Um. And then you have this theme that's just getting dispersed. And it's, I mean, this guy works for the police department and he essentially sometimes tortures people because they're really bad guys. Or, 
you know, in revenge, it's this young woman. Who, this has kind of echoes with the economic downturn, whose father was framed by his business partners and lost everything, and she's going back to ruin their lives. And somehow it's okay and kind of entertaining because they deserve it. Well, Krista, maybe I've drank. Maybe I drank the Kool Aid, <laughs> <laughs> because to me, Dexter, it's about justice. You know, is justice enough? Hmm. Is justice enough in the world, or do we need something else? So it's not glorifying a serial killer, and it's not getting off on watching him. It's sort of making viewers ask themselves, what do I need to be human? And if I can tell right from wrong, but it's a very subjective judgment, is that okay? Or is there an objective way to look at right and wrong? And even if I do have a justice code, is that code enough to make me whole as a human being? Now, hmm. Jack Bauer was an action show. So I would put no one before me in their their um, love for Kiefer Sutherland's character. Hmm. But I don't know if it was really dealing with his interior life so much as no, a didn't. fantasy yeah. a fantasy of revenge and um and control after 9/11. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I mean I do want to talk about the fact that Dexter the new season of Dexter has huge religious themes running all the way through it and religious characters and I think we have a clip um this was from one of the may have been the first show in the season where Dexter is actually about to kill this guy. Um, and they actually have a theological discussion. Uh. Brother Sam says we all have a light inside us. No, I don't think that's it. It's the killing I- one. Uh, maybe it's not on here. Uh, I don't think it made it on here. It was the one where he's standing talking to the guy about, does it make it all right for me to kill you? All right. Well, well. anyway, you you know what I'm talking about. We can play it. Um, um, yeah. I mean, he, he basically asks, he has this religious discussion um, with this man who is religious, who has been a murderer, um, about whether it's all right. I guess it is. I mean, if I follow on what you've just said, it is about it's it's a it's an extreme discussion about justice. Right. This season seems to have Dexter reevaluating his moral compass and asking himself, "Is justice enough?" Um, Brother Sam seems like a great character in that because he's really trying to have Dexter think not so much about justice, but about God and love. And now, Brother Sam is this murderer turned minister who becomes kind right, of a spiritual advisor to Dexter. Right. And Dexter is very um, ambivalent about him at first cause, because it was jailhouse religion. As you say, he was a murderer who found God in prison. Right. And what's interesting to me is when Sam tells Dexter how he um, was converted, he talks about going in the prison chapel to kill someone and then being struck by the light. And that was a life-changing experience. And I like that. It was 
organic and it was it wasn't mysterious it wasn't supernatural it was like you know encountering god in your everyday life and it was echoed a little bit later in that show when dexter goes to get a cup of coffee and the coffee machine won't put the co- bring the coffee down and dexter shakes it and he finally says god just you know I'll do anything if this happens. And he wasn't just talking about getting a cup of coffee. He's, mm. he's in a hospital because his son um, is having surgery, right. and he's worried about his son surviving. So he's ostensibly asking for the coffee, but he's really talking about letting his son be healed. Mm. And so, you know, did God let him have that cup of coffee? I mean, was God behind Brother Sam seeing the light in the prison? I mean, when you think about that as compared to the characters in— um, Walking Dead, these characters in Dexter are encountering miracles in their daily life in very small ways because that's how God is speaking to them. It's not anything big. It's something very small. And there is a lot of, um, I mean, you've you've been writing about this. There's a, there is a lot of, you know, beyond Dexter, there's a lot of overt religion all over the place. In, in a way that's kind of new, all kinds of religion? Yes. There's all kinds of religion, I have to say. Most of it's pretty Christian. Uh-huh. You know, whether, whether it was... True Blood is the one that really is diverse, <laughs> right? That has Wiccans and... Yeah, that's true. Uh-huh. That's true. Um, those witches this year were sort of interesting to me. Um I um, was thinking in terms of witches and girl power and what does it mean to have Mm. women who are out of control and unruly. Yeah. Um, How did you like that sub-theme about the witches? I mean, I wanted to be sympathetic to them, but I just couldn't because they were like, you know, getting in Eric's face, which I really disliked. Yeah, they were were kind of—they were just crazy, the witches. They they were out of control. Um, But why in a—but then didn't that kind of— it bothered me, like in a show where mm-hmm. vampires are can be good right. and where werewolves can morality. be good. Yeah, that's true. Why are the witches? Why it's are true. the girls bad? It's true, and it's true. It's true that the vampires that the the vampires are not all men, but they have real male vibe, and the witches mm-hmm. have this very female energy. Yeah, the, the gender politics in that sort of bugged me, uh-huh. um, because Alan Ball is usually pretty sensitive to marginalized groups Mm -hmm. and he's even said that you know the vampires can be stand-ins for gays or for any oppressed marginalized people has he said that yeah yeah because that is actually I, i don't think there's i mean so there's religious diversity you could say but there's not so much theology in true blood but there's a lot of uh well, there are these big existential and moral issues that get raised again about bigotry and otherness and, you know, immortality, mortality. And I think they've done some really interesting things with that in True Blood. Are you, are you thinking of anything in particular? Um, well, you know, sometimes it's just the mundane moments, <laughs> like when... When Bill Compton, who's a vampire, mm-hmm. this feels like such a long time ago because the show has progressed so much, but when he when he proposes marriage to Sookie Stackhouse, who's not a vampire, and and, he, and, and she opens up 
a, a ticket to Vermont. And she says, Bill, why would we going to go to Vermont? And it turns out that that's where they legalized vampire human marriage. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but you know what you see happening with vampires, as they say, mainstreaming? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I was looking back at some clips and you start having... You have a lot of resistance, including religious resistance to vampires, and you have a lot of bigotry, and then you have these groups forming, like they tend to form in our culture, around making this other welcome. Right. Right, which is which is why True Blood is a great example of a show, I think, that um, is about reenchantment. Mm. So... so if you look at sort of the standard sociological critiques of society, what's happened in industrial post-capitalist society is that we've all been, we've lost the awe, we've lost the beauty, we've all been rationalized to the point where everything is, is there's no transcendence anymore. Mm. And so what we need is our culture to reawaken us to mystery and to, and to awe and to wonder. And so here's like this very prosaic Louisiana town, you know, with good old boys and, you know, rednecks. And what do you know? But a vampire comes into the bar. And next thing you know, there's witches and werewolves and all kinds of other shapeshifters. Yeah. I mean, fairies. Right. And as as the characters are being re-enchanted, hopefully the audience is also. Right. Mm-hmm. I really it's a, it's like a, that. Yeah. It's a much more upbeat sort of idea than those apocalyptic shows we were talking about before, where um, there's mystery and wonder in the world, but it's like because everything is desolate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and um, True Blood is is let's face it, pretty X-rated at times. It's HBO, but um, mm-hmm. I'm so intrigued right now. There are these two new shows. Uh, Once Upon a Time and Grimm, which I just watched, which um, it's, it's they're on different networks and yet they're they both are stories when you use reenchantment, you know, they're both stories that have the world of fairy tales as their backdrop. And uh, Once Upon a Time, in a way you could say that the that the thesis of that is kind of like Walking Dead, in that all the happy endings have been stolen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's a lovely, enchanting story, you know, that you get drawn in, and yeah, there's there's magic there. Right, and that show was put together by some of the folks behind Lost, who actually said that um, they wanted to do a show about re-enchantment, or mm-hmm. they wanted to show, do a show that would have re-enchantment as one of its um, goals. Now, I missed Grimm. I forgot to watch it. How was it? I just watched the first episode. It's good. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, 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 it also <laughs> has the fairy tales at its center, and the idea there is that the Grimm's, who originally told those stories, that the stories are true, which is also that in Once Upon a Time, the stories are true, um, and, and you know, dark as well, which it's like we're telling ourselves the truth about 
1960s nuclear families and we're telling ourselves the truth about fairy tales, which is they have a lot of bad guys in them. So, um, you know, you already met a big bad wolf um, in the first episode um, <laughs> who, has, but, who has gotten his urges under control with a strict <laughs> regimen of diet, <laughs> diet and Pilates. <laughs> diet, drugs and Pilates. Um, but but the idea there is that the Grimm's still exist and that these mm-hmm. stories, these iconic stories, continue to play themselves out. And then there are these Grimm's still with us who are able to see the story and also kind of be heroes to keep the, the evil in check. Well, on just a purely pragmatic level, I wonder if Hollywood is asking itself if vampires and werewolves have been overplayed, so now they're moving on to fairy tales. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's it. <laughs> but I, don't, I have a hard time believing that fairy tale characters are going to have the same powerful imagina- hold of the, over the imagination as vampires do. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then again, those shows are on network TV, whereas most of the vampires are on cable, right? So Yeah, it's true. Well... They're racier, those vampires. <laughs> um, so, if, so let me just—if I had just ask you the straight question, because I—I've posed this question. I've heard other pose, people pose it in the last year. You know, what what is it with vampires? Why vampires? What do you think? It, there are reasons that are financial. There are reasons that are sexual, and there are reasons that are existential. Where should we start? Hmm, I don't know. Sex, sex, money, or why am I here? <laughs> <laughs> Do a, give me a quick rundown of all three of them. Start with sex. Uh, vampires are sexy, and they are known throughout most of the literature to be great, see, great at seduction, mm-hmm. to be powerfully erotic. Um, there's something about that mixture of blood and death and eroticism that make us see them as heroic. Hmm. Now, obviously, all vampires um, weren't that way all the time. And again, this is partly because, and now we segue into finance. Hmm. Commercially, it makes more sense to have a show around a sexy vampire than one that looks like Bela Lugosi. Hmm. So um, the hint of erotic seduction was always there. And because it gets more eyeballs to have um, Stephen Moyer as opposed to, you know, some schleppy, fangy dude, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to see them as um, sexual avatars. Now, beyond that, vampires speak to very basic issues of what does it mean to be a human being? And a lot of these shows basically are looking to see, are vampires still human? Do they still care? Do they still have emotions? Do Mm -hmm. they have morality? It's, you know, as stupid in some ways as Vampire Diaries is. And I have to say, in all honesty, I love Vampire Diaries. I haven't watched it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so tell me. Okay, maybe Vampire Diaries is a story of um, a small Virginia town. You know, it's sort of like True Blood. It's a small Virginia town that, um, even though it seems very straight and normal, it's just chock full of vampires and shapeshifters and witches, and they're all, like, breaking out in high school. And um, one of the questions 
one the the protagonist who is like a high school senior is torn between two vampire brothers and the question is is can she redeem their humanity um can she get them to claim that part of themselves which they have let atrophy and um she believes is necessary if they are to be loving partners hmm. so vampires in a world where you know people do amoral things to each other rather than you know think about doing shows on Bernie Madoff or folks like that yeah. which which you have done anyway but how many can you do yeah. you know making your vampires who are sexy people um emblematic of those moral struggles makes for good drama so i think they're sexy you know they evoke questions of basic humanity and there's also some things that are just striking about them they live forever yeah. you know they have supernatural powers um they are monsters but they're not monsters yeah. so and they have they evolve right i mean they grow like humans grow their character changes i mean we have this character of godric who mm-hmm. was there in the early i don't know maybe the second third seasons who was the maybe the oldest one we've seen 2000 years old and yet right. ha- is a teenager because he was turned as a teenager um was this figure who eventually kind of preached this message of forgiveness and um was sad was saddened by and made his sadness known to the vampire he created, Eric Northman. Uh, he wanted him to be actually more human, was kind of what he was saying, in terms of the best of what we think of as humanity. Right. One of the most subversive scenes I've ever seen on television is when Godric chooses to die, and he really does become a Christ figure in that last scene yeah. of his death. Um, I showed that to my class, and you know, people can see it again on YouTube, but Paul is really explicitly saying this guy is the suffering servant. He is dying for our sins. You know, mm-hmm. he is the lamb of God. And it's intriguing because, you know, he has totally turned um our moral universe upside down by making the vampires the good guys and at the same time making the Christians who have been pursuing and wanting to kill the vampire yeah. the bad guys. Yeah. So, yes, it's it's an interesting show because um, they're not afraid to um, play with our accepted conventional wisdom. Yeah. Um. But that's it. The monsters in those monster shows are not monsters, whereas the human beings in those shows like Dexter are yeah. the monsters. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and speaking of one more monster, I just want to throw in Nurse Jackie. Have oh, you yes. watched Nurse Jackie? A little bit, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I was thinking about witches. Jackie is a witch, right? <laughs> you mean essentially? <laughs> <laughs> essentially, yes, because she is an unruly, out of control woman who kind of casts spells on people. Now, she doesn't hmm. cast spells on people in the way you think of witches doing. So that's not the show. But she has sort of this um, unbelievable effect on people. Men fall in love with her. Women follow her. I mean, she's not a particularly, as I see the character, 
compelling or attractive in most ways. She means she's very down to earth and normal, but somehow she exerts this magnetic pull on people. She's a drug addict of sorts, and right? She, right. She's yeah. a drug addict. Yeah. Her basic intention, I mean, she's pretty amoral, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, she's pretty much into her own satisfaction and pleasure. I mean, she's sort of a witch. She's a modern day witch. Mm. Um, now, the whole show is cloaked in a lot of Catholic iconography from, you know, the opening credits where she has a halo of pills hmm. to the fact that she's in that Catholic hospital where you always are talk- seeing the statues of saints. Right. So the fact that she is the witch in the Catholic hospital is even more interesting to me. Hmm. But that's another example of, you know, a human being who is actually a monster. So I want to talk about, um, we mentioned 24 and the show... The new show that is being linked with that or compared to that is Homeland. But it is a very, very different program. Um, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the Claire Danes figure bears almost no resemblance to the Kiefer Sutherland figure. Um, are you watching that, Homeland? Yes, I am addicted to that show. It's good, isn't it? It's very good. So, it, yeah, go on. It's it's one of those shows that was a little hard to watch at first um, because the characters were not tremendously attractive and and either to look at or in terms of their actions. Yeah. But the more I've watched it, the more I've appreciated Claire Dane's performance. Um, and also, what's the name of the male actor? Is that Damian Lewis? The, He's, the S- he, Sergeant Brody character? Yeah, Sergeant Brody. He's really good, too. So so the story there is um, <clears throat> that a... Uh, and, you know, I have to say, when I was hearing reviews of it before it aired, I thought, why, how can you carry a plot with that, right? That there's a an American soldier who was taken prisoner and has been released, and so he comes home a hero. Claire Danes is... She's F- FBI, right? Or Homeland Security... Anyway, she's CIA, CIA I think. Uh, agent who just before this Sergeant Brody was released, it's whispered in her ear by a contact she has in some prison somewhere, Islamabad, someplace like that, um, that an American soldier has been turned. And so she suspects this guy, this Amer- who's now an American hero of being part of the enemy. Um, I mean, but unlike Kiefer Sutherland, who was just full of... <laughs> Certainty at every turn, right? The classic hero. Um, she's manic depressive. She, uh, she's very strong and interesting and and stubborn. Um, but she's in the dark, and so are we about what's really going on. Still, I think Jack Bauer would really love her. He'd like mm. want to take care of her. Yeah, he liked weak women. <laughs> but you know, she's not weak. She's. She's a little crazy, don't she's you crazy. think? She's crazy. She's crazy, yeah. And <laughs> and so so in terms of religion, and this is a very different way, direction for this to go, in terms of these overt religiosity, I mean, let's say in 24, Muslims were bad guys, but there was no real investigation of what it meant to be Muslim, right? It was it was an identity. It was basically Muslims were terrorists. This This perplexing figure of Sergeant Brody... And we really st- still have no idea what's going on inside him. We know he's been th- he's been tortured. We know that he's a he's a human being who's struggling. Um, 
And there's a moment in the second or third episode, which is, comes, comes out of the blue, where he, we know he made a trip to the store and he bought something and we don't know what he bought. And he goes into the garage and he pulls out a prayer rug and he washes his hands in the way Muslims do before prayer, ritual cleansing. And he, and he kneels and he prays. Uh, and let's, we have that sound. Allahu Akbar Bismillah Al-Rahim Alhamdulillah did you see that? Yes, I did. It was almost like a Rorschach test um, yeah. about that character. What did you What did you think when you saw him do it? Well, you know, I thought uh, Nancy Franklin did a review of this in the New Yorker, and she said. She really put her finger on what I felt, which is in that moment we felt both more worried and less worried about him than we had before. But the the human effect it had was here's this guy who's been tortured. He's clearly struggling to be back home with his family, to be back in the world. He felt more at peace than he had at any moment mm-hmm. since you'd been introduced to him. It was it was there was something quite beautiful and peaceful about it. That's so interesting, Krista, because when I saw it, I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, um, Claire Danes is totally right. The guy is a Muslim sleeper <laughs> killer. And you see, know? well, <laughs> I thought it was so it was such interesting complexity they introduced because so now we know. I mean, I think all we know is that in those eight years of captivity or whatever, he converted to Islam mm-hmm. or he began to pray as a Muslim. Uh that's but all why we know. doesn't he? Yeah. Right, but we also know that he hasn't told his family. We saw a scene of him in church where he looked like he was praying. So we know that for whatever reason he's not talking about it. Which yeah. that could that reinforce me? I mean, even if it was something positive, and it doesn't mean he's a sleeper agent. He knows that it would be bad to say he went native. <laughs> well, he's so private, and he's so post-traumatic stress. You know, uh-huh. to me, it felt like this is how he's holding himself together by going away in a room and praying. And it happens that's, to be Muslim prayer. Yeah. That's um, that's interesting. I thought here we're seeing how he's going to get the strength to, you know, turn traitor on the United States. Really? <laughs> But, but, I mean, let's contrast this with 24, right? Where, I mean, there's, there's ambiguity. Here? Yeah. As opposed to when Jack thought he was dying and he called for an imam to hear his last confession. <laughs> I didn't remember that scene. <laughs> Not so much ambiguity, but let's show the Muslims we, we really like them. <laughs> That's right. And there were those public service messages where Kiefer Sutherland come right. out before the show and say, we really, what, what, we respect our Muslim brothers and sisters. No, I think it's 
I think it's a fascinating ambiguity. And I, I, now that you say it, I can see it. It's just that I think Americans at this time and place are predisposed to be so suspicious of yeah. Islam. But I think it's actually, it's actually, it, it's dramatically challenging that. Not by wrapping it up, but just kind of throwing out a challenge. Could this American hero have converted to Islam um, without betraying his country? Without betraying his country, and this is part of what's holding him together. And you think there's going to be a miracle any day now on The Walking Dead, right? No, no, <laughs> no. I don't think there will be. That's why I'm probably not going to keep watching it. <laughs> I need some good news every once in a while. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that show is is great and it's interesting and I'm going to watch it now with more appreciation because I guess that um, I am the kind of knee-jerk viewer who thought Islam was being used as a sign of disloyalty. Hmm. So hmm. the fact of it being something which is holding him together hmm. and has constituted a new positive identity just never struck me. Hmm. I be great if you're right. Mm. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see if the series continues long enough to know which one of us is right. Um, let's talk about Enlightened. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or did you want to talk about something else? Well, I, I wanted to make one thing clear, which is that oftentimes, you know, on your show, you're talking about life and death issues that... Um, have to do with suffering and meaning and, you know, helping people in the third world and doing good things. Mm -hmm. And the more I think about media, the more I come to believe that we live our lives through media and that people spend something like five to seven hours a day watching television. Mm -hmm. It's a place where we learn who we are and we learn who we are with and we figure out what's important to us. So on the one hand, it's easy to trivialize TV because, you know, it's part of this corporate structure and we know that the programs are just there to sell us the advertisements. On the other hand, it is, for better or worse, the place where many of our basic core symbols are enacted and where we really think about what it means to be human in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. So I wanted. Just to give a little commercial for the fact that, you know, we can sit here and joke about some of the stuff, but I really do believe we're looking at central concerns of many Americans today as they deal with economic crises, as they feel their lives out of control, as they feel like, you know, they're living in a world without hope. Yeah. You know, they are the walking dead, as you said. Yeah. Um, these shows, even... As they, on the one hand, trivialize some of these issues by the very fact that they're commercial entertainments, they're still bringing them into the public square for discussion. So, yes, that's, that was my little soapbox. Mm -hmm. well, and, okay, and then you and I are talking about, uh, well, the shows we've talked about uh, in this conversation are mostly quite aesthetically sophisticated um, storytelling and uh, drama uh, cinema, really. And then, I mean, I guess I just have to ask, I mean, people who watch five to seven hours of television a day, I mean, some of that, including what my children watch, 
is reality TV, which is in a whole other category. Right. I mean, what's that? How does that fit into what you just said about the meaning making function of this stuff? You know, I don't watch enough reality TV to say anything tremendously smart about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, to some extent, people watch reality TV not not Ace of Cakes or home decor, but other kinds in order to see models and to understand how people make decisions. I mean, whether they're watching the Kardashians or whether they're watching Real Housewives, it's entertaining, but I think it also offers them um, a big canvas um, on which they can project, no, I don't want to be like the Kardashians, or maybe I like their house, but their values are screwy. Hmm. So reality TV may may operate like that, more like the news. Um, people look at the news, one, for to find out what's going on, but also to try to make sense of issues in their world. So it's not that different than dramatic TV. It's just another avenue for it. Hmm. Um, but yes, it's... it's um, it's puzzling. It's puzzling. Yeah, I wonder if reality reality TV in some ways is more escapist than you know these vampires we've talked about, where there are actually really big existential right issues at play, um, even though it's also high drama. It also seems to me, oddly enough, more like wish fulfillment. Yeah. Whether you're learning how to dress or bake cake or survive on a vacation. It's basically extending the base, the material functions of your life one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not about, as you say, those existential questions. It's more mm-hmm. about, you know, how do I take care of myself in the here and now or how do other people take care of themselves? Right, right. And in the material level. It's not storytelling in that sense right. that human beings right. have always used stories. Right, right. And I would like to talk about Enlightened, which is this new half-hour weekly HBO show. It's HBO, right? Yeah. With Laura Dern. Have you been watching that? Yes. And do you know the backstory of this? No. Okay. This is great. Laura Dern and Mike White created it. Mike White is the son of Mel White, who was the conservative Christian minister who ghost-wrote books with Jerry Falwell and others and then came out. Yeah. And, um, you know, embraced his gay self. So Mike White grew up in this house, and Mel White came out to the family years before he actually came out to everybody else. So he was living in this world where his father was a conservative pre- a conservative minister in Pasadena, but also had this deep secret. Hmm. And Mike White has said that at his home, his father often used Hollywood movies as a way to to talk about spiritual issues. Huh. Now, Mike White has done a number of movies with Black, Jack Black and Laura Dern and other folks. In the middle of doing a TV show a couple of years ago, he had a nervous breakdown. And he has said that Enlightened sort of is a riff on what happened to him. Hmm. Um, it's not a one-to-one correspondence, but his experience kind of breaking down and then finding yoga and Buddhism right. helped to shape the material. So this, doesn't that make it like it's, a whole different thing? It's really and he, interesting. <laughs> and and the other thing that's so cool is the industry where she works, Abaddon. Mm-hmm. Abaddon 
in the Hebrew Bible is the underworld, and in the book of Revela- in the book of Revelation, Abaddon refers to the angel of the dark abyss. So the whole show is like going on on a lot of different levels. Yeah, that... well, it is, it is a parody of corporate life on one. I mean, that's one of the little themes. Um, so what I'm interested in, is, of course, it's just started and it's just unfolding, but uh, it's a complex view of spirituality. It makes fun of it. In ways that it can be funny. I mean, so I'm gonna like I'm gonna play. We have a clip of Laura Dern talking to her ex-husband, who she's kind of reconnecting with after she's she flamed out at work. She went into treatment, had a, kind of a spiritual high, and came back. Um, and this is this is one of the scenes where you where it it borders on parody, or it is parody. Um, so, uh, but it's funny. I mean, it's good. TV. So it was one morning, super early, and I was meditating on the beach. You're giving me a smirky look. No, I didn't no, say anything. I just, I want you to be open. Okay. I'm wide open. Anyway, I decided to get in the water, and a sea turtle just passed by. Big, beautiful sea turtle. It's wow, cool. I felt this presence all around me. It was God, or it was, it was better than God. It was something was speaking to me. It was saying, this is all for you, that everything is a gift, even the horrible stuff. Oh, I know what you mean. I kind of had the same thing happen. <laughs> I was at Red Rocks. I was on mescal. <laughs> no, I, I'm glad that happened to you. I am. <clears throat> the presence of God. Really. Presence of God. So. Great, great choice. <laughs> but it never completely veers over into making fun of it. And it's like she's trying really hard. <laughs> but after reading about Mike White, I mm-hmm. um, like this show better because I wasn't sure if it was a parody up and up or whether yeah. it was trying to take on some of these issues. And it seems to be skating on the edge of both. Yeah. Um, I think he really, they really are asking, how do you live in this world without succumbing to um, desperation or unhappiness or greed? I mean, everything that Abaddon stands for in terms of corporate ruthlessness, because we know from the show that they are really messing up the environment and that it's not a good corporation. I mean, how do you find a way to live in this world where you aren't, you know, a cog in the system, yet you can still lead a somewhat normal life? You're you're actually helping me realize how important that work life is. And, I mean, that is where we spend so much of our life these days. And it's a terrible place to work. 
Right. Not only is a company a terrible place to work, but they've assigned her to the lowest rung of hell, yeah. which is um, a, a, a basement office for company misfits where they just program numbers into a computer all day long. Yeah. So... Not only is she working for an evil corporation, but she's doing utterly mindless work for the for the corporation. And still, so much of her identity has to do with working there, having that job, right? The people she knows from work, the guy right. she was involved with before she flamed out and went into treatment. But she's also trying to get out of there because she knows it's a bad company. Yeah, You know, she's made those efforts to... Um, present herself as someone who can um, be a public liaison and try to explain that they're not just raping the environment. Mm. So she's aware that it's not a great place, but her identity is caught up with it. Also, she needs the money. You know, her enlightenment costs $50,000 and she still owes half of it. Right. So again, isn't that an interesting commentary? The fact that, you know, Happiness isn't free. There's a big price tag on it. And, you know, can you have this enlight- experience of enlightenment and then somehow integrate it into your everyday life in a way that doesn't alienate um, or turn off other people? So far, she's not doing such a good job of it, right? No, she's not. She has flashes. The, you know, the other thing is you have written a lot and we talked about these overt religious themes that that are there in really interesting ways, even in something like The Walking Dead, I mean, the crucifix and the, 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 the death of the sun and all of it. Um, but there's a way in which this show feels to me also like a maturing of how spirituality has come into the culture in the last 20, 30 years. Um, it's, it's nodding to the fact that there's a, a flaky side to this. <laughs> Right, mm-hmm. mm, but it's also nodding to the fact that there's something that's really meaningful for people, and uh, s- somehow it's just it's acknowledging that in a new way. I can't think of many shows that tackle this. Can you? Uh-uh. I mean, it it feels new to me without just making fun of it. Right, without just making fun of it. Yeah, um, and that takes her real breakdown and putting herself back together seriously. Yeah. And the one of the problems is she's so flawed. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, she sits there and you know her interior dialogue and, you know, she's looking at the at the river and she's thinking, it sounds like that Stuart Smalley character from Saturday Night Live, like mm-hmm. a Hallmark reading card, like I'm watching the river flow and I yeah. feel it flowing in me. Yeah. And you're thinking to yourself, like, I normally see characters on television who are saying more interesting things. And this is so pedestrian, you know, I could be saying it, mm-hmm. but I can't believe a TV character who is supposed to, you know, hold up an example is saying it. And it's almost cringeworthy yeah. because um, there's nothing I mean, it's not ironic at all. It's going back to the iron- irony thing. There's, she's, she has no irony. She's just yeah. straight out there, like, thinking the river is moving through her. And 
Ee. <laughs> but but it's almost cringeworthy, right? Because there's always this, she's she's really searching, and as you say, she's so flawed, and there's pathos, and yet we recognize her. <laughs> oh, that's why it's cringeworthy because it could be me sitting and making yeah. those comments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you do um, identify with who she wants to be. She wants mm-hmm. to be an agent of change. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't want to be an agent of change? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's just that she can't be because she still has all the anger and resentment and unhappiness that was always there. It just now has a layer of kumbaya on top of it, Mm -hmm. or so it seems. Mm -hmm. I mean, can't she swim with the turtle even when she's back at home? That's going to be the big question for her. Yeah. She's not a she's not a witch though. I'll say no. that much for her. No, she's not. <laughs> what else? We've covered a lot of ground. Oh, when we were talking about Muslims and about opening up um, to different religions, there is one interesting side note to that, mm-hmm. and that's the ninety nine. Have you heard of the ninety nine? No. The ninety nine is a comic strip about the 99 attributes of Allah. Hmm. And um, it was turned into a cartoon by um, a Muslim psychologist who wanted after seven after 9-11 to try to educate people about what Islam was really about. And so he has 99 superheroes, each of them embodying different aspects of God. And it's not preachy or, you know, theological. It's just more like how these superheroes help people by being who they are authentically. Mm. So the TV show has been sold. It's playing, um, obviously, in parts of the Muslim world and in parts of Europe, but they can't get a distributor here in the U.S. And even though there's been testimonials from folks saying that this is a good show and it's not indoctrination and it's not, you know, polemical, it's just a good action show with good values, no one wants to touch it. So Islam is still a very hard sell with American audiences, or maybe it's just a hard sell with um, corporations who are worried about it. Yeah. Which... Also makes has I guess that's part of going back to homeland. Why I could not possibly believe I guess that Islam would be actually doing something good for that character, since it's hard to think of a serious television show where there is a positive portrayal of Muslims. It'll be interesting to see, won't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, when we were—so this, the 99, is it—can you watch it somewhere else? Can you watch it online? You probably could do a YouTube—you know, if you Google it, there may be links to YouTube or mm-hmm. to other places. But, yeah, I um, I was at a conference a while back, and I saw a clip for it. And, you know, it looked interesting, benign, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. super, superhero stuff. So when we talked a couple years ago— um, we were talking, you were talking about how where you were, especially with your students, about all the different ways people inhabit and work with um, the television that's meaningful for them. 
And, I mean, that's just exploded even in those years. I don't think Twitter was something anyone did back then. Um, are you, is that still something that you're, that you're watching? And how, how do you think, um, how are you thinking these days about, you know, not just how we're telling important stories on television, but how we then continue to work with that and bring it into our lives? The revolution, the media revolution that's occurred with um, new technology has totally changed the way we process information. And part of why, and I'm so glad you asked me this question because I should have said it, part of why television has become even more powerful as a place for working out social and cultural issues is because we're no longer isolated intelligence is, you know, watching in our own homes. We can immediately get online and form communities and reach out to other people who are going to be thinking through the same questions that we are. So I am struck by the number of blogs that um, work on issues around Dexter or work on issues around zombies or work on issues around vampires, asking the questions that we've been talking about for the last hour or so. What does it mean to be human? You know, what is morality? How does justice figure into love? Um, How do I know what's spiritual? Can people change? These very basic questions are debated by people now in not only in forums or through blogs, but also Twittering on them. Yeah. Whenever I Twitter on a TV show, you know, I get most responses to almost anything else I do. Hmm. Or posting on Tumblr or, you know, going through Buzz. I mean, there's so many ways to get these ideas out and so many people who want to talk about them. Um, that's part of what the strength of them are. That's part of what the strength is and why it's so significant because... The public square is is become virtual, and so it's become more inclusive. It's become transcultural, transnational, and you know, people all over the world can talk about Dexter now, or <laughs> debate whether or not you know the Muslim conversion in Homeland is um, a cyn- you know a cynical ploy or a deep truth. Yeah. So, multi. Th- the fact of our um, mediated experiences um, further and deepen the spiritual connections that we are making through uh, culture and through television in particular. And the fact that this goes on in our homes, you know, oftentimes, or the fact that, you know, you can toggle between watching a TV show on your computer and, you know, Twittering it at the same time, it just makes it even more immediate for people. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Oh, um, Trent has a question behind the glass. Hang on. Okay. It's a man question, Diane. Get ready. I haven't heard it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Right. going to be able to do justice to this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase. So, so Trent is just intrigued by how, um, uh, I'm going to try to do this. So, 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 so my producer Trent on the other <laughs> side of the glass is listening to this and he's intrigued and he doesn't watch all these shows. Uh, he has young children, so he's excused. Um, but he's intrigued by I think how in many of the cases of the, especially these men, like Don Draper from Mad Men or Bill Compton, the vampire, or Dexter, there's a lot of sympathy that, that, that you know, that we're showing towards them, um, that they're alienated and, you know, somehow even when they do bad things, they're okay, that, that, that there's not the same kind of sympathy shown towards the guy in Breaking Bad. I think that's kind of a question mark, but... But I think the interesting point that Trent is making is that for him, and he's wondering if this is because he's a man looking at this, Don Draper is the monster. Um, well, I don't disagree with him. I think Don Draper is a monster. Because he just um, keep he's, he's, he's a casual monster who's being monstrous with oh, um, ordinary well, he, 1960s life or... Well, he's, he's somewhere, in terms of what we've been talking about um, throughout this show, he's a cross between a zombie and a vampire. <laughs> I mean, he has that vampire charm. Yeah. Um, he lives and by sucking appeal. other... And sex appeal. And yeah. he, you know, lives drinking other people's blood, mm-hmm. um, which we've seen, you know, which is basically his relationship with Peggy. But he's also a zombie in that he's, you know, totally cut off from emotions. He does not play well with others. You know, he seems to be inhabiting his own universe. Mm-hmm. So of all the male characters we've talked about today, Don Draper is one I have very little sympathy for. Mm. It's mostly a testimony to John Hamm's acting, or maybe his good looks, yeah. that he's not an utterly despicable, um, soulless character. But do you find him? Are you? Do you find him a sympathetic character? No, I don't. I find him an entertaining character, though, in a way that I don't find a Dexter entertaining. And I, I think that comes back to also the, the kind of aesthetic elegance of of Mad Men, right? Mm-hmm. Too. He's just. He's. It's <clears throat> not just that he's good looking. It's like they make everybody so appealing to look at. It's. Um, it's those, you know, that he keeps all those white pressed shirts in his drawer in his office. So when he's been drinking all night or slept in the office, he can always look so dapper. <laughs> but it's very superficial. Right. But Dexter is always saying to himself, and we know this because we hear him talking, you know, should I be thinking this or is yeah. this enough or what about justice? I mean, his interior monologue is humanizing him. Yeah, tortured. Don, right. Don mm-hmm. seems to have very little interior monologue 
except, you know, what can I screw next and how much whiskey can I drink? Yeah. And maybe that's in keeping with the conceit of the show. Like, you know, did men in the early 1960s not question themselves? Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's because, as I said earlier, he's a zombie. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Trent, do you want to? Do you yeah. think? Uh-huh. Who are the one? And you think like the Breaking Gat bad guy? We don't make excuses for. Mm-hmm. He's wondering why? Why? But, why do we make excuses for a Don Draper or a Dexter and not for for some other characters? Well, partly it's the intention of the writers and the showrunners. So Vince Gilligan, who is a creator of of Baking, Breaking Bad, has said that he wants to show actions have consequences. He wants to show what happens to this character when he begins his life breaking bad. So inherent to this show's structure is the fact you're going to see um, Walter White's life um, fold in upon it itself, and you're going to see the consequences of these horrific decisions he's made. So part of it is just the artistry and the decisions made by the creators. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're um, following cues. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I I don't think it's necessarily all about the acting or the drama or the story. I think yeah. there's intentionality behind the writer who who puts these things together. Right. Well, this has been really great and fun, and I think you were brilliant. So you don't need to worry about that. Oh, Krista. Thank you. Will you come? Will you come live with me? <laughs> <laughs> Only if you'll tell me I'm brilliant too. <laughs> you're brilliant and you're beautiful and you have great clothes. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, I, let's talk on the phone off air, and okay. um, we are gonna get to work on this. It'll be a few weeks, but we'll let you know, and you know, we'll put some clips in, and it's gonna be really fun. Good. Okay. Good. Great. Great. Thank you so much, and um, I'll call you, and we'll make a date, okay? Okay, great. Bye-bye. Bye.